Friday lunchtime lectures at the Open Data Institute. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for joining us on our on this Friday uh, for our lunchtime lecture. Um, today we are joined by our guest Carl Malamud, who is from Public Resource. Um, he's here to share his efforts about um, making making information more publicly available. And if you are on Twitter, please share, join the conversation with hashtag uh, ODI Fridays. And if you have any questions, please save them until after, and then Carl will be happy to answer them. Thank you, Joe. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I want to thank Jenny Tennyson, who's not here, for inviting me. Um, really appreciate that. Um, I've always been fascinated by ODI and, um, and by my friend Tim Berners-Lee. Um, let me tell you one short story, and that will let you put my words into context. When I um, uh, wrote a book called Exploring the Internet in like 1991, 1992, I traveled three times around the world to visit everyone who was making the internet, and I wrote a technical travelogue. Um, and there's one person, one visit that I left out of my book. Uh, when I got to Geneva, I was there because Geneva was putting Eastern Europe online. They were running lines into Russia. And my friend Brian Carpenter at CERN said, you got to meet this guy who's got an interesting project. And so I went into this dark room, and Tim Biel was there on a next workstation, and he showed me the web. And I said, well, you know, that's interesting. And I thought to myself, but, you know, this is a local area network thing. It, it won't scale. And that's the one story I left out of my book. Um, so. <laughs> um, I am in uh, London, and I was in Dublin just for a day. I'm, I'm just here for a few days. I was here to visit Arcadia, uh, which is an amazing foundation that funds public resources work. Uh, they've been doing some really pioneering uh, work in open access. Um, I was just out this morning at the National Archives to, to talk with them and to meet John Sheridan, who does the legislation site for the United Kingdom, um, which is a fascinating thing. Um, so I want to talk about two things. I want to talk about edicts of government, the law, and about all human knowledge and why that should be available for people. So edicts of government are the law. And um, there's a principle called the rule of law that you may have heard of. But let me go over that very briefly. There, there's a wonderful book by Lord Bingham called Rule of Law, which goes over these, these concepts if you want to know more. But the rule of law is enshrined in all democracies. And it's in the Amsterdam Treaty for the European Union. Um, it's enshrined in the common law of the United Kingdom. And it says three things. It says that the laws will be written down ahead of time. We don't make it up as we go along. As John Adams said, we are a nation of laws, not, not of men. Um, you write it down. The second principle is promulgation, that ignorance of the law is no excuse, that, that if you don't know what it is, you, you, you can't follow the law. And those two things are not by themselves enough to do rule of law, that's rule by law, because you can have a law that was written down ahead of time that everybody knows about that says men can practice this profession but women cannot, or people of color are not allowed to sit at lunch counters in Alabama, right? So you can write it down, um, you can promulgate it, but if you really want rule of law, they must be laws of general applicability. The laws must apply to everyone. Um, the laws must be general. And so that's a very important principle. Um, as you will see, that um, ends up getting violated on numerous occasions. So I have spent um, 30 years putting government databases online. And in 2007, I started Public Resource, which is a uh, US-based charity. We're certified by the IRS. Um, and we did things like put, you know, U.S. Court of Appeals online, and I worked with Larry Lessig from Harvard on that. We uh, downloaded a bunch of court opinions from the PACER database. I worked with my friends Aaron Schwartz and Steve Schultz on that. Uh, found numerous privacy violations in the way the courts were handling information. Um, but the one kind of law that I noticed that was not available at all are technical public safety laws, like building codes and fire codes. Um, so these are model codes that have the force of law. Uh, a fire code says things like if you run a school, you have to have proper egress in case of fire. Um, 
There are technical safety laws that, that govern personal protective equipment in laboratories and in factories. If you're running a metal lathe that has metal shards coming up, there are technical requirements as to the kind of glasses that you can have online. Um, there are hazmat transport uh, technical safety laws that if you're gonna transport uranium or gasoline on public roadways or railways, um, here is how you have to do it. Environmental laws, uh, testing for lead in water, pesticides, which pesticides are allowed, how can you use pesticides, mechanical laws for safety of boilers. Um, you may remember in uh, reading about the early 1900s when boilers kept exploding in buildings and causing horrific fires. So all of these laws are based on things that actually happened and public safety organizations and governments have en enacted them, and these are binding laws. Uh, there are laws for toys and playgrounds. So for toys, for example, uh, there is a toy safety law that says if you have a hole in your toy, it needs to be big enough that a finger can go in or small enough that the finger can't go in, but it can't be the size where the finger goes in and gets stuck, <laughs> right? And that's based on something real that actually happened. There's infant laws, and I'm going to talk about one of those in just a minute. So in the U.S., I had posted a whole bunch of these technical laws that are um, made by nonprofit organizations, and then they are incorporated by reference into the law of the land. And they weren't available. The California Building Code was $1,000. Um, but remember the rule of law. The law must be available. In the U.S., the law has no copyright. There's no copyright on Supreme Court decisions. But despite that, there's this niche of technical law, which I consider some of our most important in our modern technical world. And so I started posting the U.S. laws, and we got sued by six plaintiffs, six nonprofit organizations that says we have copyright over these laws. Vicious litigation. Uh, EFF represents me, uh, Fenwick and West is representing me pro bono. All the lawyers represent public resource on a pro bono basis. But this litigation is expensive. Um, in 2015, our pro bono legal bill was $2.8 million. Uh, we have nine law firms working for public resource around the world. I want to talk about Europe, though, um, and I, I hope it's okay to do that in the United Kingdom, at least for a few more months. Um, so uh, Europe has a system of harmonized standards. Um, so the European Union sets priorities for toy safety, for example, or packaging materials, and they hand those priorities with a boatload of money over to two organizations, CEN, the Center for European Normalization, and CENELEC, which does electrical. Um, standards. Uh, the national standards bodies, like the British Standards Institute, are, are the members of CEN and CENELEC. Uh, they invite some experts in, as well as the national standards bodies, and they come up with a standard for the safety of toys. Um, they publish it for draft comment. Uh, they vote it in, and it becomes a standard, and then the European Union officially blesses it, and they publish it in the official journal. Now, they don't publish the actual standard. They publish a notice saying EN41 is now a harmonized standard. Now, every standards body in Europe has six months to issue that standard as a national standard unchanged. You cannot make any changes to it. You can put a one-page forward on it, but the standard itself must be identical, and every nation in the European Union is under an obligation to transpose it into national law. Sounds like the law, doesn't it? The, there is a well-developed fiction that for some reason standards um, are private and they're voluntary and they're not compulsory. Um, and in the course of looking at infant standards, I actually asked the consumer representative to this whole standards process, who used to work for a standards body as far as I can tell, and he said, no, you know, ordinary people don't need to read these standards. Um, you know, the manufacturers need to read them, and besides, they're voluntary. And I'm like, how can they be voluntary? And he said, well, look, the law simply says you shall not kill babies. This standard is one way of not killing babies. Um, if you do it that way, there is a presumption of conformity, but you can not kill babies any way you want as long as you prove that your way is safe. So you can either use the law, which is, of course, the baseline, or you can obviously come up with some other way of doing it. And the fiction is that this somehow makes the standards voluntary. Um, 
I disagreed with that. Um, I did two things. I took all the toy safety standards and transformed them into HTML5 with SVG graphics and MathML and accessible to the blind and drafted a petition to Her Majesty's government that said, look, these are the law. Here's why they're the law. Here's why there's a long tradition of the law must be available. That went nowhere. Uh, didn't get a response. Uh, but I also started posting standards. So in addition to the toy safety standards, I posted the Euro code, again, transformed it into HTML, made it accessible to the visually impaired, about 800 standards from Europe. And then I got sued by the German standards body. And in this case, when I say I got sued, they sued public resource and me in a personal capacity. And they picked two standards. I don't know why they picked these two. They could have picked many others. They picked the EU-mandated baby pacifier standard, baby soother. Um, and that standard says things like if, um, you know, the, the rim of a baby pacifier needs to be big enough that you don't swallow the thing. If there's a pellet inside that, you know, that, that rattles, it needs to be on the outside, not on the inside part, because on the inside part, the baby will chew through it and swallow the pellets. So it's very common sense things, but, but there's actual numbers that say the, the rim must be a certain number of millimeters. The second standard they picked is the safety standard for mountain and racing bicycles. Now these standards are not cheap. The baby pacifier standard is 254 pounds from the British Standards Institute. Uh, the bicycle safety standard, uh, the one that they sued me for, is no longer in effect, but it was $200. Um, if you wanted to buy that one. And the bicycle standard has, has all sorts of very useful things about the safety of bicycles. And as you know, for bikes, a lot of people maintain their own, particularly if you've got a racing bicycle. And so these are things that I believe ordinary people ought to be able to look at. Um, we got sued by the German standards body on those two. Uh, represented on the first level by a civil rights group named iRights.de um, uh, in Germany, and then by Morrison and Forrester, which is a very big law firm. And our argument was pretty simple. It was, first of all, this is the law. Second of all, it's probably not even valid copyright, because how many ways can you say it must be 30 millimeters for the ring on the baby pacifier? I mean, can you say greater than 29 or less than 31? These are facts, and copyright is only awarded to creative works. If there's only one way to say something, and there's really only one way to say the law, which is what the law says, there's no copyright. Um, we also discovered that uh, the Standards Act of Germany, uh, the Copyright Act of Germany, says that standards may have copyright. And that's what the German standards body relied on. We did a freedom of information request, and it turns out that DIN, the German standards body, wrote that provision of the law and got Parliament to enact it, and the law only applies to them. Now, remember, laws have to be laws of general applicability. Um, so that was our argument. Their argument was these are copyright and they need to be available and besides we want the money. We have the exclusive right to sell this standard in Germany and we were somehow hurting their revenue. Now, I don't believe that for a minute. Um, but that was their argument. We also pointed to a decision. So the Irish Supreme Court um, was resolving a court case, uh, which was James Elliott Construction versus Irish Asphalt. And they claimed that Irish Asphalt had not given them asphalt that conformed with the mandatory standards for asphalt. And the Irish Supreme Court kind of scratched its head for a while, and then they sent it up to the, the Court of Justice for the European Union for an advisory opinion. And they said, well, if these harmonized standards are noticed in the official journal, do they have the force of law? And the Court of Justice said yes. And we pointed that out to the German courts and they ignored us. So I was convicted. Uh, there is now a permanent injunction, should I post the baby pacifier standard or the racing bicycle standard, uh, 250,000 euro fine. And if I can't pay the fine, uh, the way they phrased it is the person of the president shall be seized for administrative detention for a period of one to two years. Um, so needless to say, I have not reposted that standard. But that James Elliott decision really bugged me because it seemed to me the court had spoken about this. And so the reason I'm back um, here in Europe, or 
when I went to Dublin, I was uh, <laughs> in Europe. Uh, I am now partnering with Right to Know uh, Ireland, uh, which is a wonderful transparency group. Um, a solicitor, Fred P. Logue, who is absolutely amazing at transparency work, and again with Morrison and Forrester. And we are using the Our House Convention. The Our House Convention says that you have a right to environmental information. So we picked four standards that have environmental information. For example, the toy safety standard for chemistry sets. And we are sending a freedom of information request in directly to the European Commission, asking them for these standards. Uh, presumably, they'll turn us down. Who knows? Uh, we will then appeal, um, which is, again, a letter. And if they turn us down, we actually have direct recourse to the um, Court of Justice for the European Union. And so we hope to present the issue. Uh, there's two things we want to resolve. One is that standards that are the law must be available, not only to read on some bad website, but to copy and speak to inform your fellow citizens. And that the other is that the standards bodies, when they are acting in their official lawmaking capacity, are public authorities. And we are actually looking for other groups um, to join with us and send in similar letters, because we'd like to make this a pan-European thing, if at all possible. Um, So that is edicts of government, and I'm going to explain at the end why I care about this so much. But let me talk about one other thing. Um, I had been doing a study in the U.S. We have a copyright clause called the Works of Government Clause, Section 105 of the Copyright Act. And by the way, let me add, I am not a lawyer. Um, I've had to deal with the law a lot, so take my legal advice with a grain of salt. Um, Works of government, which are um, things authored by federal employees or officers in the course of their official duties, have no copyright in the U.S. It's a special clause that is unique to the United States. And I looked, and I saw that President Obama had written a law review article in the Harvard Law Review, and the Harvard Law Review was essentially asserting copyright. They were saying, well, the words of the president don't have copyright, but the distinctive look and layout of the Harvard Law Review, uh, basically the article is under copyright. And so I conducted a study. How many articles were written by federal employees? Um, I found 1.2 million journal articles, doctors at the National Institutes of Health, U.S. Department of Agriculture. You know, we have a real powerhouse of, of science in the U.S. federal government. Um, now, whether or not it was in the course of their official duties, I don't know. Uh, but we found that many or most of these articles had copyright assertions on them and were behind paywalls. Uh, we tried to access, we, we took a, a subsample of about 10,000 articles from annual examination. Many of them were not accessible at the University of North Carolina, one of the major universities. <laughs> one of the ways that I conducted that study was using a database called SciHub. In the United States, um, using data for a non-commercial transformational purpose, in my case, looking for public domain articles, um, is legal. It's something that you're allowed to do. Um, I had begun working in India um, a lot. Uh, I spend half my time there now. We are putting all the Indian standards online. I'm actually, uh, we are, we have presented a public interest litigation before the High Court of Delhi. We have oral argument on October 9th. Uh, we're helping put all the official gazettes of India online. Uh, we run the largest uh, public digital library of Indian books in the world now, 400,000 books. Um, but I had been looking at a court case. Um, Delhi University, has a copy shop on premises. And if you're a student, you can go there and your teacher will assign you a set of journal articles and you can buy a course pack for a reasonable amount of money. Uh, pretty cheap by our standards, but you know, reasonable amount of money by Indian standards. And um, Oxford Press, Cambridge Press, and Francis and Taylor filed a criminal complaint and the police raided the Delhi University copy shop case and the poor owner was taken away in handcuffs. Um, and sued for massive copyright infringement. And it went before the High Court of Delhi. And two friends of mine intervened on behalf of the students and the teachers, and they pointed to the Indian Copyright Act, and they said there's an exception to copyright. When a teacher is providing a student materials in the course of instruction, copyright does not apply. Case was dismissed. That was not a copyright violation. 
Um, it's an important precedent. Uh, you can copy journal articles for the course of education. And I looked at that, and it appeared to me that there had to be a way of making Sci-Hub available to the students of India. India is the second largest user of Sci-Hub in the world. Uh, China is the largest, but you know, among the top 10, the United States and the United Kingdom, because students in regional schools and even in the major universities in the United Kingdom do not have access to the scientific journals they need to do their education or their research. There's one other thing that is not happening. Big data today is one of the most important emerging fields of computing. It is impossible to do big data, artificial intelligence, machine learning research on the full scholarly corpus, the 71.3 million journal articles that are in existence. And it seems to me that that's a moral crime, right? That the publishers are saying, no, we will not allow big data to happen on the corpus of science research. Now, Sci-Hub is under huge attack right now. Um, there is a $15 million judgment out against Sci-Hub in, in the United States. Um, the publishers are attacking as, as strongly as they can. But here's my point. Um, the scholarly corpus, a lot of it is not under copyright, and it is being improperly kept inside of a paywall. The scholarly corpus is not available for big data research, and I think that's one of the big challenges of our time. One of the things I'm doing in India is talking to vice chancellors and science labs and professors and big data researchers and a lot of lawyers, and we're asking ourselves, how can we make all scientific journals available first for big data research, non-consumptive research, right? You're not actually reading them, but you're running computer programs. And later on, how can we make this data available to all the students of India who do not have access to the journals that they need in order to continue their education? This teaching exemption is enshrined in the Berne Convention. Many countries in the world have a teaching exemption in their copyright law. Um, so why India? Well, India led the way. I mean, Gandhi did two things. He liberated India but he also set the example for decolonizing the world. And it appears to me today that knowledge has become colonized, ironically enough, by quite a few um, British corporations. Um, and in today's world, scientists are the indentured servants, right? You take your raw materials, journals are the new railways, you ship your raw materials over to England, and then you have to buy the high-priced finished goods and you have no alternative in order to continue your farming. To me, Sci-Hub is a salt factory on the edge of the ocean of knowledge. It's an unlicensed salt factory, but it is no different than Gandhi walking to the ocean and saying salt is necessary for human life. I think knowledge is necessary for human life as well. And it appears that India, at least to me, is the place to change that. Now, you may ask, why do I care, right? There are important problems in our world, like global warming and, um, and, and politicians who don't believe global warming exists. Uh, there is massive poverty. Uh, India has a food surplus and 200 million people dying of starvation. There are diseases all over the world and there are pills that would cure those diseases that are being sold for thousands of dollars. And the question is, how do you change that? And I think the way you change that is an informed citizenry. In, in our system of government, in a democracy, we own our government. And so if you don't think that global warming is being properly addressed, we have to take control of that. Um, I want to close by talking um, about a, a piece that John Adams wrote called The Dissertation on Canon and feudal law, and it's about why an informed citizenry is just so important. And let me quote from that. Um, he said that rulers have tried to wrest from the populace the knowledge of their rights and wrongs and the power to assert the former or redress the latter. He said in a democracy, liberty cannot be preserved without a general knowledge among the people who have a right to knowledge. He said that the preservation of the means of knowledge among the lowest ranks is of more importance to the public 
than all of the property of all the rich men of the world. If we wish to make our democracy work, we must let every sluice of knowledge be opened and set aflowing. And what we've learned from people like Gandhi and King and others is that if you want to make a change like that, if you want to say knowledge must be set aflowing, it's not going to be easy. It requires struggle. Um, as Martin Luther King said, change does not come rolling in on the wheels of inevitability. It comes only with continuous struggle. And so that's why I think it is important that we fight for things like making the law available, for making scientific knowledge available. So that's what I have to talk about. I'm happy to talk about India as well and to entertain questions. So does anyone have any questions? And we have a microphone here, so please um, speak into the microphone. You won't hear anything, uh, but it's going out to our friends in the internet. So, questions? If there's, there we go. Hello, thank you very much for your talk. Um, so one thing that I'm wondering is, do you have a set of um, specific kind of laws or regulations that you think need to be put in place to stop this kind of thing happening in terms of... Uh, your conviction? Well, uh, so for edicts of government or for the scientific knowledge? Well, I was thinking or about both. the edicts of government, but I actually would okay. be interested to hear. So for edicts of government, I think it's just absolutely crucial that government steps in or the courts and says that, look, if it's the law, People must be able to read it and speak it. Now, I don't care if it's under copyright. There's Queen's copyright here in the United Kingdom. But there's an automatic license that lets you take a law, retype the law, put it in a better format. And I think that principle must be absolutely clear. Um, and that is something that needs to be done. With scientific knowledge, I think the... So I believe in the future, open access is going to happen. If you look at, at um, um, what is it, plan, plan A, plan S, um, that, the, that the funding agencies of the European Union have come up with saying everything's got to be open access. Many of the professions are starting to do open access journals. But the backfile is still there, and we have to stand on the shoulders of giants. Right? We cannot do research without reading the backfile. And I think we do need to make very clear that at the very least, big data research and a teaching exemption needs to be allowed. Now, people will say, oh, my God, we'll lose all our money. Um, I think that's nonsense. I, I, if you look at Reed Elsevier, their gross margin on scientific publishing is 40%. That's bigger than Google's gross margin. Um, they've become immensely rich using inappropriate copyright assertions over material they don't own, and that system needs to be reformed, and I think it's going to need some help, probably from our governments and certainly from the academic community. So. If I could follow up. Um, so just to take the first example, so if... Um, you know, if we want to kind of have, say, the European Commission or someone else uh, put, put in legislation that says, you know, technical public safety laws have to be openly licensed um, and published, what, you know, what's the process? What is it that we as a community um, in civic technology or elsewhere should be doing to actually make that happen? And do, do you have a you know, like a roadmap or a plan. Well, so something interesting happened after the um, James Elliott decision that the European Court of Justice did. The, um, the Parliament, uh, the Commission did a study about standards and it was enshrined as a resolution from the European Parliament. And it's a really weird resolution because it says two things. On one level, it says, okay, this stuff's really important. We need to be much more directly involved in standards because, you know, they're really important to our society. And it says both Parliament and the European Commission shall be much more directly involved. And then it somehow enshrines this fiction of, of, of private voluntary standards are the way to keep going. And it's directly counter to what the European Commission, uh, to, the, to the European Court of Justice has done. Um, and so there's now this split in which it looks like Parliament has a very different view on copyright, and as we know, their copyright views are, are not necessarily the greatest right now, um, but, but a, a view that is directly diametrically opposed. So there is legislative work that can be done. Um, I, again, I am looking for uh, groups that, that can begin petitioning the governments and saying, I'd like the standards, but, but simply raising awareness with members of parliament be very important. Um, and then I believe litigation is probably going to be necessary in the European Union in order to resolve the issue. But I think you do both because you don't really want to do it with litigation. The, the easy way to do it is legislation, right? Just simply the people speak. 
Um, there is a tremendous opportunity, by the way, with Brexit. It's the only tremendous opportunity that, that I can see. Uh, but the United Kingdom is going to have to rethink uh, how it does standards, because right now they're taking all the European standards and uh, implementing the harmonized ones. And so I do believe there is going to be an opportunity to think about the issue again. Um, Hi, I'm, I'm an academic, so I'm particularly interested with the teaching exemption. Could you tell me a bit more about the freedoms that we would have uh, once that is resolved? Well, so the teaching exemption says that you can, um, you can give copies of journals to your students and you can use them yourself in the course of your teaching. Um, it's in the Berne Convention. There, there's a few little, you know, it, uh, uh, there's like four principles as to how nation states can implement the teaching exemption in the national law. Um, but, uh, so I don't know what the deal is in the United Kingdom with the teaching exemption. Um, I believe here it's more of a fair use kind of fair dealing type of uh, exemption. But in India and in, in many countries in Africa and in other parts of the world, there is that exemption in place. It was actually meant as a uh, developing countries kind of exception to copyright uh, was the main purpose so of that. So you're saying that in India, uh, students can download journals from Taylor and Francis and other? Uh, no, so what the Delhi University case said very specifically is the Delhi University library had the journals, the Delhi University copy shop went to the library, copied the journals, and then sold them as printed course packs. So that was the facts of that one decision. Now the language of the Copyright Act is uh, teacher and student in the course of instruction. The question is if a student were to download it from their university website, is that legal? I think it is actually under Indian law. If you download it from Francis and Taylor and give a copy to somebody else, um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, and it could be that the issue has not been resolved by the courts. And that's one reason that we are, uh, when I um, began looking at the issue of Sci-Hub, I actually went on the Indian press, on the wire, and I, I wrote an op-ed that said, listen, I have no intention of building a pirate site. I'm not here to do BitTorrent for every student in India. We're trying to resolve this legally. So I am talking to vice chancellors and laboratories and others and trying to understand how does one do this under Indian law? So I don't have the answers necessarily. It may take a change in Indian law. Um, I don't think so though. And the reason is that the right to education is very firmly embedded in the Indian constitution. It, it, it's one of the fundamental rights. Um, and so the Indian Copyright Act is building on that underlying constitutional basis. Um, and, and so that's one of the reasons that I believe um, if there is going to be a revolution in access to knowledge, India is one of the places it, it can begin. Um, it's not going to be in the U.S. It's certainly not going to be in Europe. I don't think, although I've been surprised. The, the Germans, for example, the German universities have been pushing back very hard on high-priced journal subscriptions. Um, there is a growing open access movement in the United Kingdom that has been very aggressive. Um, so perhaps things will start, start here. Um, for me, since I was doing work in India anyway, uh, with the Indian standards and things like that, I've decided to kind of double down on that and, um, and spending uh, every other month, the full month in India. I'll, I'll spend all of October in India. I'll be in eight different cities, I think. Um, and again, trying to push this idea that this is important, as well as carrying on some of the, the operational things we're doing, like putting all the gazettes of India online, and uh, we are buying every government book that we can find um, and scanning them and putting them online. And it's, it's a beautiful collection called Hind Swaraj that's got the complete works of Nehru and of Gandhi. We have audio files of Gandhi speaking on All India Radio and uh, books on, on the religions and the mosques and uh, the, the temples and the architectural aspects of India. and um, it's, it's a lot of fun. When I go to India, I'll buy 50 to 100 kilos of books and I ship them back to the U.S. and then we scan them at the Internet Archive. Um, 
It's the Hind Swaraj collection. Um, Hind Swaraj's Indian Independence, it's the title of a book that Gandhi wrote um, in 1909, uh, which really kind of set out his philosophy of, of civil resistance. And, and you know, it was the beginning of, of uh, it was one of the first times he really set his philosophy down. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating book. It's, it's quite short, but it's, it's, I was inspired by that. Um, I worked with a friend of mine, Sam Petroda, who was CTO of India. Uh, he was a cabinet minister under Rajiv Gandhi, under Mamoham Singh. Uh, he put a telephone in every village in India. Uh, that was his claim to fame. And he and I co-authored a book called Code Swaraj. Um, and the idea is you need to own your code. Um, it's online, public.resource.org slash Swaraj, uh, S-W-A-R-A-J, all lowercase. And you can download it for free. Uh, you can buy the paperback. Um, I brought a copy here for Jenny Tennyson. Um, so I don't have any easy answers for you, but um, I, again, it's a struggle. I, I think it's an important issue for our times. I think the great promise of our generation, every generation has things that they can do. Uh, roads, railways, aviation. I think ours is universal access to human knowledge. Um, I think it's the thing that we can accomplish. I don't know if we will, but I think it's the thing we need to strive for. The internet is in place now. Um, it can be used for WhatsApp and fake news. It can be used to rig the United States elections. Can we use it to provide knowledge to all human beings, in particular students wishing to educate themselves? Um. Hi. It's on, it's on, it's on. No, no, please, uh, because you have to right, go okay. on the internet. Hi, very fascinating talk. And um, do you see any positive change in society or in government, in U.S. government, compared to days of Aaron Schwartz? Well, you mean lately with Donald Trump? Um, no. <laughs> Maybe in, uh, no, so, no, in local I, governments, I, for instance, California I, or any... Um, Let's say yes, uh, there are some things happening. Um, so uh, the courts are not making their information available, and that was the big fight that Aaron and I tried to do. And you know, the courts reacted very poorly, uh, called the FBI on us. They staked out Aaron's house. It, it, it was nuts. Um, there, has, there was a lot of progress in the Obama administration, um, in particularly bringing really talented people into government service. Um, that's something that Todd Park, who was Chief Technology Officer of the United States, um, really spent a lot of time doing. Going to Google and saying, you know, you've been at Google five years, uh, you could go start a startup, but why don't you do something that actually matters? And then, you know, a week later when that person's on the fence, um, it'd be, please hold on, and it would be Barack Obama on the line saying, would you please come to Washington and help me? And that's kind of hard to refuse. Uh, Jen Polka started Code for America, which has had a, a very good effect on, on local governments and in particular training people who then go into local government and make that their career. Um, so there are some things that have been happening. Um, on the other hand, uh, we have an increasingly virulent copyright maximalist uh, society out there trying to clamp down on knowledge as much as possible. Um, and that's getting worse. I, uh, people are trying to extend copyright terms. They're trying to make copyright stronger and stronger um, beyond the purpose of copyright, which of course was uh, an act for the encouragement of learning was the purpose of the original Copyright Act. Um, uh, the United States Copyright Act is meant to, to further human knowledge. It's not there to put money in the pocket. Money in the pocket is simply an incentive to make knowledge available to people. Um, so I, I think our Copyright Act has, has gone in the wrong direction and is in dramatic need of reform at this point. So there's good things and, and bad things. Um, but, you know, you can't have everything. Uh, you just got to keep trying. Question behind Sam? Uh, you've got everybody fired up. What should we all run out and do? What, what's that? What should we run out and do? Oh, well, you know, that's always a hard one. Um, I have a lot of people want to come in and, and, you know, they look at my fight to make standards available or journal articles and say, well, I'll just download a bunch and we'll slap them up on BitTorrent and I'll go to Reddit. Um, that doesn't solve the problem. I don't think you can solve these fundamental issues with a weekend hackathon. And so I think the thing you got to do is you got to find one thing that really matters. 
and maybe it's just open source. Maybe, maybe you are developing software that does something that's important, but maybe you pick an area of knowledge that you think is important and, and work on it. And it, one of the things I've found is that if you're doing something big or important, it's gonna take 10 years. Uh, it took me 10 years to get the US patent database up. We took three runs at the thing and, and it just took forever to get the government to like get it together on that. Um, the fight to put building codes online, I've been doing this since 2007. And so you gotta pick something that other people aren't doing and just make that your obsession. And that's the big thing you can do. Uh, the other thing you can do is join a, a group, you know, like an open source operation or the open rights group um, and begin working with your colleagues to do something with them. Um, and so those are two ways to be actively involved. But the people that really make a dramatic difference are the ones that find something that isn't being done. Uh, my friend Sushant Sinha in India has a PhD in computer science from University of Michigan, uh, was working at Yahoo India, um, and wanted to do something to give back to his country. And he had seen some of the work I was doing and others were doing, and he noticed that the Indian court cases were not online. And so he started Indian Canoe, and he just scraped all the court cases. I mean, they were there, but they were on websites, and they were like inaccessible, and they weren't indexed, and they were in bad formats. And he built Indian Canoe, um, which is just a, an amazing site that's got like all the court cases of India, and it's a beautiful search engine, because that's why he got his PhD in. He ended up quitting his job at Yahoo, which was, I'm sure, very well paid, and now he does Indian Canoe full time. Um, and I'm, I'm very pleased to work directly with him. Uh, he is one of my co-petitioners um, in the public interest litigation in front of the High Court of Delhi. My other co-petitioner is Srinivas Kodali, who has been one of the leaders in the fight against Aadhaar, um, which is the biometric unique identification system in India, which just recently had a big court case. And it was a well-intentioned system. Aadhaar, the idea behind Aadhaar was that poor people weren't getting their government subsidies. And the reason is they didn't have bank accounts, right? Uh, they had no way of getting their subsidies, uh, you know, like rice, for example. Um, and a lot of it was getting siphoned off in corruption. And the idea of Aadhaar is you would use your thumbprint as biometric and you would get a unique ID. And this meant poor people without bank accounts could all of a sudden get their rations. And that was the idea behind Aadhaar. It's been implemented horribly. And it's turned into the, you know, in order to get a phone, you had to give your Aadhaar number. And for the poor people, so it turns out if you're a peasant working in the fields, you might not have a thumbprint. A lot of them just didn't have fingerprints anymore because they had been working in these fields 12 hours a day all their life. Um, so it wasn't serving the purpose that it was intended for, um, and it was implemented very poorly. So, so Srinivas has been one of the leaders there. So those are my two co-petitioners in front of the High Court of Delhi. Um, I mean, it's a real pleasure to work with folks like that. India is great. I, I've really been enjoying working there. Um, there is a burgeoning open government movement, free software people, open source hackers that are just interested in making their society better. Um, and it's, it's the kind of environment I just love working in. Uh, so. Thank you. I've got some questions from okay. uh, Twitter. Uh, the first one's from Henry from Tech Nation. He did the last uh, IDI Friday's talk for us. And he asks, who are the key players stifling open access? Is it corporates or governments doing more pushback? Corporate. Um, who is stifling open access? I think that's very simple. Um, if you want to index the Reed Elsevier journals, they, they simply say no. You're not allowed to, let alone doing big data research. And, and again, my, my contention is that a lot of the journal articles they have in their databases are not their property. That, that, uh, there was a study at the University of Pennsylvania. So in the US, you have to renew your copyright before 1963. You had to periodically renew it. And this guy did a study of serials and journals in the United States, and the vast majority had not renewed their copyright. Um, and so there's works of government, there is non-renewed copyright, there's open access um, data that isn't open access. That's a common horror story that we hear. Um, if you, uh, so what, what, the way it works with these, these large publishers is you get a package of journals, right? Your, your university subscribes. Uh, God forbid you are like an independent researcher because then you get nothing. Uh, but if you're at a university, you get a package 
and it's got certain journals. And they're very expensive, these packages. So like even Harvard has been cutting back on its packages because it can't afford them. Uh, JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University, spends more on its journals than on support for all of their grad students. Um, if you want a journal article outside of your package, they'll charge you whatever they can. And so there, there's actually a list out there. Uh, Companies like Reed Elsevier have charged $5,000 for a single journal article because you, know, you need it for your research and you have to go to your funding agency and say, I need $5,000 for a piece of paper, uh, but I need it in order to complete my research. Um, so to me, it's corporations that have misbehaved, but it's more than that uh, because there's all these scholarly societies like the American Chemical Society that have decided they'd rather have the money than the dissemination of knowledge and, and their core purpose. Um, and so I think it's the publishers in general have kind of lost their way. They've forgotten why they're there. Um, and that's what needs to change. So, and um, one from Emma Tribe on Twitter. Um, how do you ensure version control of codes and laws so that the latest information is available when republishing? Uh, so version control is interesting. So when governments incorporate a standard, governments are pretty slow. And so they incorporate a specific standard. You don't just say the building code. You say the 2013 version of the building code. Now, the publishers can sell things like red lines, you know, comparing the different versions. Um, but uh, if, the, if the law was available, you could begin doing version control and comparisons. And you, you might want to compare toy safety standards between the US and Europe, which I did, actually. I've got both the ASTM F963 online and the EN, uh, the EU standards. And it's actually interesting to compare them to see how they differ. Um, but if the law is not available to repurpose, you're not going to ever have that kind of, of proper version control. Uh, today, if you want version control, you have to hope that the publisher publishes a red line for you. Um, and they may or they may not. And we're in a situation where you now have to ask a private party for permission to do something like version control, and they can arbitrarily turn you down, and they do. Uh, there are students that have gone to uh, the people that make like the energy code, um, and they want to write computer software that models the energy code, right? That, that takes the parameters out of it and lets you figure out in, in your architectural software if your building is energy efficient, is it code compliant, and they get turned down. I said, no, you're not allowed to do that. And it, again, it's like the publisher saying you can't do big data on medical journal articles or the code people saying, no, you're not allowed to improve compliance with the energy code because we're going to keep that for ourselves as a possible revenue source. That's wrong. These are public goods. Right? The purpose of public safety laws is not to charge $50 or $200 an item. The purpose of public safety laws is to make our society safe. Um, I wanted to take the conversation back to India and the gazettes and the documents that you're putting up online. Mm -hmm. So a lot of my research comes off the back of publicly available government data. And a sort of a trend that I see in India is that though the rhetoric on, on accessible data has increased manifold, the kind of data and the quality of data and the searchability of that data has decreased. So I work on urban governance, and so you could look at project-wise data by city, by state, by nation and you could get it from a centralized space. Whereas now, it's erratic, it's not updated, but the infographics have increased beautifully. So <laughs> the government of India will cons consistently put up infographics saying, okay, this is the kind of changes we've made. And so this, this disjunction I find very difficult when, when I'm sort of speaking about, let's say, accessible data, including laws. And I think, first of all, India is an extremely lit litigative nation. There's a lot of uh, legislation and constitutional changes that occur due to litigation in just sort of small courts. So my, I don't know if I have a full question, but my idea is how do you, you deal with that dichotomy that we speak more of open data, but we're actually reducing that access and we're doing it for very political. I mean, infographics are great, but you, you want the underlying data because you want your own conclusion. You don't want a smiley face in a bar graph that goes up, right? You, you want to know what the actual data is. So legislation um, and regulations uh, have not been as available in India as they should be. 
Um, they've had an issue like we had in the United States that led to the birth of the Federal Register and the Code of Federal Regulations, which is a regulation gets passed and it gets amended, 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 and then you end up in court and the judges and the plaintiffs and the defendants have no idea what the law is. Um, there is a writ of mandamus from um, the courts of India to the government of India saying you need to do a better job. Uh, there is an emerging system they're putting online. It's not very good. Um, not very good at all. Um, I think um, better promulgation of legislation and regulation is a priority. It's actually one of the areas I'm working in in India. Um, there are a number of lawyers and others that are very interested in this. Um, availability of economic data, environmental data uh, is something I'm very interested in. I'm not directly working in it. My friend Srinivas Kodali has been looking a lot at, at those. Um, I think a lot of that is getting people on the ground, citizens, people uh, with technical skills, pointing that out and attempting to do something about it. Because, you know, some people are reasonable. Many of these secretaries in, in these, these ministries really do want to do the right thing. Um, many of them have an IT staff that is outsourced to contractors, um, and they just don't know that it can be done in a different way. Um, so a lot of what I do is I go talk to government ministers and judges and others. And, you know, for example, the things like the works of Gandhi and all the publications, many of them are very surprised. And they go, wow, this is amazing. Or um, the standards. Um, many people, many ministers did not understand that the Indian standards cost money and had copyright assertions. And they're like, well, why? Why do they cost money? And I explain the system and they go, well, that's nuts. Um, and so I think a lot of it is educating people. Um, it's the kind of work I did in the United States for a long time. And what I'm seeing in India is a whole bunch of people beginning to be interested. So it, it isn't like the situation has dramatically changed. Um, but I think there's potential. I think there's potential. But yeah, lack of data is an issue. It's an issue in the U.S. too. I mean, our current federal government is, is deleting all the climate change data they possibly can. Um, in fact, they're deleting the word climate change. That's now illegal if you're a federal employee. You're not supposed to use it in, in, in any manner. Uh, there's actually directives in like the Environmental Protection Agency. You're not supposed to use the words climate change. I think they have some other word of, you know, like um, un unseizable increases in temperature or something like that, but um, it's totally nuts. Um, we got five minutes left, right? Um, so one more question, and then we will close. Or no more questions, and then we will close. And I can follow Max's face and bring him back to India again. Microphone. Sorry. Why did you choose the gazettes? Like, I, 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 I think that the gazettes are very important because they tell you the everyday of governance. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting. I just want to know, the gazette, and is there anything else that you're looking at sort of building up on in, in the government? So in the government, I am looking at works of government, the books, the gazettes, because those are the official newspaper of government, both at the federal and the state level. Uh, if you have a regulation that's in there, the municipal codes are in there, procurement is in there. Uh, there's a whole bunch of different things. Uh, we have the Public Library of India, 400,000 books. Um, and we're looking at scientific data. So the, those are the areas I'm working in. On the other hand, there's many other people doing many other important things in India as well. I, I try to focus on very specific projects. So I, I don't do general purpose advocacy. Um, I, I mean, I believe in open data. I think it's an important principle. But I look for specific databases that are not available that I might be able to put online by buying them, by crawling them, by scanning. Um, and often that's what you end up doing these days, um, is, is you just get out scanners. Um, so, <laughs> I believe we are done. Uh, you have a close? Okay. Thank you for coming, everyone, uh, both in the building and online. Um, and thank you to our wonderful speaker. Very good and very informative. I'm going to check out um, the website as well and see okay. what I can find. Um, and thank you for joining us. Okay, my pleasure. Thank you very much. <laughs> You've been listening to a Friday Lunchtime Lecture, brought to you by the Open Data Institute.